a BRFCS podcast, sponsored by the lovely people at The Terrace Store. Follow them on Twitter at The Terrace Life and check out their website at theterracestore.com. Hello there and welcome to a slightly different BRFCS podcast episode. We recently released on our YouTube channel a video talking about the performance of Blackburn Rovers in the Steve Waggett era. A number of people contacted us and said that they would like an audio version of that video, and so we've created this podcast episode. If you'd like to see the visuals used, then clearly just nip over to the BRFCS YouTube channel and watch the video there, but hope you get enough from the audio to make this an enjoyable and informative experience. Okay, welcome everyone to this program. This is something a little bit different. Uh, for starters, we're in video. I'm normally used to doing audio, but uh, I'm joined tonight by Glenn Entwistle from Rovers Chat, and we're going to talk about Blackburn Rovers finances. Oh, I'm excited for it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a kind of pet geek hobby for me as the finance side of stuff. So uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I'm not sure good's the right word, but <laughs> well, this may come across as a sort of like price of football tribute act, I guess. Uh, I, I, just to set the expectations about what we're trying to achieve in this, I think you should view it as Glenn and I are going to try and conduct Steve Waggett's annual appraisal. We're getting to the end of the year now, and it's that time of year where folks get dragged in, well, used to get dragged into offices and have one-to-ones with your manager. Now, of course, it's all over Zoom, <laughs> in the vast majority of instances. Uh, and we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of Steve Waggett. What we're going to do is we're going to try and consider all the, the factors that are at play in the financial dynamics of what's affecting Blackburn Rovers and how it's affected. What we're hoping to get across to you in the course of our conversation is review what has actually happened and try and explain why it's happened and arrive at some conclusions as to why Steve Wykert has done some of the things that he's done and perhaps explore some of the things that he could have done differently, but also have a look at the ramifications of what his decisions have meant for the club. It's probably worth saying as well, Steve Wackett was appointed at the end of 2017, so we're going to focus largely on the numbers from 2018 onwards, albeit the history of the club obviously impacts on, on the situation that he inherited when he, when he picked up the role. But having said that, he's had uh, almost four years now to stamp his authority on the club, so I think, I think we can do him a four-year appraisal if nothing else. <laughs> So we felt that we ought to just uh, explain some generic financial principles just to try and set the scene before we get into it. So with, without delving too much into Kieran Maguire and uh, price of football territory, here are some basic accounting tenets, I suppose, that you need to be aware of. Any business, no matter what industry it's in, can only ever get money from three to one of three sources. It can get it from its owners, usually in the form of share capital. It can borrow, potentially from the owners, potentially from banks and other financial services institutions, or thirdly, it can trade profitably and generate income. So no matter what business you're in, no matter what sector you're in, that's where, that's how your business is funded, effectively. 
share capital from the owners, loans either from the owners or banks, or you trade profitably. So bear that in mind as we go through this conversation. There are also two sides to the equation in any business. There's the income side of things and the expenditure side of things. And what hopefully we'll do over the next few minutes, however long it takes us to get through it, is we'll look at what Rovers have been doing on the income generation side and we'll consider and challenge maybe what else they could have done. And we'll also look on the expenditure side and see where cost control is being brought into play. Uh, And we'll try and balance up how rovers have been doing against each of those two key metrics so hopefully that doesn't scare you off too much um but we'll we'll try and tell the story i suppose and, and i think i'll caveat my role in this with my i have no financial kind of expertise or backing whatsoever in terms of sort of this, this field my, my knowledge of finance kind of starts and stops at probably gcse maths and statistics like i say this is a bit of a, a geekish hobby of mine but um I said that the Professor Kieran Maguire, anybody who hasn't listened to his Price of Football podcast, definitely give it a shout. But it's, it is, once you look into the accounts, you can see the kind of between clubs, how you can compare different clubs, how they've done, things like that. And I'll profess I'm self-taught, so I may learn something from you today as we go through this podcast, but I'll, I'll try and interject with Rover's accounts from the last few years and, and also comparisons with other clubs we might strive into either be more like or be less like. Here's a hint. Yes. We want to be less less like Derby. Less, less Derby County and more. Yes. We have another role model club, which we're going to come into. So, yes, Glenn has also done some, some excellent charts for us as well. So we'll, we'll bring those up as, as we're talking through them to try and explain some of the context. So that's finance generically. We're going to look at how the club is funded. We're going to look at income and expenditure. It's probably worth mentioning some specific Rovers context as well before we delve into the, into the numbers. The, the main trading entity in the Rovers group in the UK is the club. So when we're talking about profit and loss, when we're talking about income and expenditure, we're going to be talking about the club's profit and loss, albeit it, it's owned by Venkis London Limited. And of course, there's a new subsidiary that's been formed recently mm. uh, specifically to own... Um, the, the STC, and we will touch on that later on, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, what we also need to factor then is that there's a lot of intercompany money between the parent and the subsidiary, the club. So the parent lends money to the football club. Think of that a bit like being the bank of mum and dad. So in this instance, Blackburn Rovers is the needy teenage child that needs constant money and attention lavishing on it, and Venkis are the parent that sign the cheques ultimately and pay the bills. Because of that, we're not going to get too into the debt situation. This is more about trying to understand the trading situation. So what could we do to increase our expenditure? What have Rovers actually done? And what can we do to control our costs? And again, we're looking at what, what Rovers have actually done. So we're going to start off by having a look at Rover's income and we're going to bring up one of Glenn's charts and he can talk to that. Let's have a look at, first of all, where does Rover's revenue come from and what are the key trends that we see? Yeah, so uh, if you look at the chart that's on screen there, you've got us going back to kind of 2016 through to 2020. Just to kind of another caveat with this is we've only got the accounts up to the end of the, the 2020 season. And that 1920 season is the first kind of COVID impacted season. So I think kind of February onwards, less than half a season, you've got the COVID impact. So, so the three main sources of our income are match day. So that's your tickets, your merchandise, your, your beers, your burgers, your hot dogs and stuff on the concourse. 
you've got your broadcasts, so that is TV money. What do we get from Sky? What's our kind of what are we allowed to have from then? If you took the graph earlier, that would include the parachute payments as well. So back to kind of 2012, 13, that time, we'd have that money in there. And then you've got your commercial side of things as well. So um, the the big one there that that as fans we can potentially impact is the match day and the commercial. Um what like I say, that, that's the three main ones we've got there. It's quite interesting as you look at those graphs, the kind of, obviously 2017-18 is the League One season, so they see the TV money drops off quite significantly. So when, when you're looking at other things like comparison of how much we're we spending on wages against that, it's, it is quite a bit of a, a blip that season. And I also think that it's quite difficult to assess the job Waggot's doing based on the, the data we've got there. So if you can bear with me a second. So you've got the 2016-17 the season, which is the, the relegation season. So you've got the end of a big stint of time in the championship there. You've then got League One, which is a kind of isolated season. You've got probably players on a lot higher wages than the rest of League One. You've then got 2018-19, which is our first season back up. So you've got... Yep, players getting bonuses for promotion. You've got that fighting to stay in the division. It's your first season up, consolidate. And then you've got the COVID 2019. Yeah, well, actually 2019-20. Yeah, that ties in well. So saying he came in kind of 2017, it's difficult to say how good a job is he doing because you've never got a normal season, so to speak. And I don't think we will have for another few years now because of COVID. Um, so, So yeah, just to kind of caveat, how his appraisal goes with those facts are he has always got that hold on we were in league one or hold on that was our first season up so he has got a, a little bit of defense there really but but yeah the, the the three main sources are match day broadcast commercial and um the match day one you can see for 2019 20s at 2.6 million but again tech february to may you've no walk-ups you've no people coming to the ground on the match day because of covid and i think that probably probably skews it a little bit in terms of the 3.7 million from the year before and obviously 2.8 for the, the league one season was a reduction in attendances but season tickets feeds into that and I think that's that's we'll probably come back to season tickets I think in terms of match day pricing and season ticket pricing but but that's a bit of a snapshot really of the income sources what what isn't captured in there is player sales player play sales player additions where we end up on that that's great. Thanks, Glenn. Yeah, well, we will come on to player trading. So let's just summarise what, what this graph is telling us. I think your point is absolutely right. It's very difficult to have year-on-year comparisons of apples and apples. So we're, we were in one division, then we dropped down a division, and clearly you can see there's a massive impact on TV revenue, and that, that is a significant, the single most significant contributor to Rover's income. So if, you've not, if you're not on telly, um, that that's a massive, massive impact. And as we say, we came back up and that was terrific and everything bounced back. So the trends are now recovering. The trend lines look good. And then lo and behold, we probably lose somewhere between 20 and 25% of our revenue uh, at the end of the 2020 season. Of course, the 2021 accounts are going to be probably a bloodbath. And I think you're absolutely right to say it's possibly not going to be until 2023, certainly at least, if not 2024 before we see yeah. uh, some some standard stuff. So that's where Rover's money comes from. It's rather frustrating that in the accounts themselves, we don't get the breakdown of the integral parts that we'd like to see. So in Glenn's chart there, you can see that effectively match day is the blue block that you've seen. 
and that's made up of ticket sales, of corporate hospitality, of concourse sales, and various other bits and bobs like that. Uh, there's also the, the commercial side of things, and that's a, a massive bugbear of mine, which will include um, the merchandise and the shop mm. and online uh, propositions and stuff like that. But essentially, in 2020, and I think if I was Steve Waggett, I'd use COVID as the excuse, revenues dropped, but they didn't drop in line with the, the completely with the, um, the lost trading position. So Rovers were pro- probably holding their head above water, but could they do better? That's that's the key question. The one thing that we do have objective data for that we can really get our teeth into, and uh, we're indebted to Andy Watson here, who has uh, done some analysis on averages of tendencies. I don't think we asked him to do this. He just timely, in a timely fashion, he actually produced a graph and tweeted it um, uh, earlier today. So we can have a look at Rovers' average attendances since we came back into the Premier League. Now, we can't really hold Steve Waggett to account for anything prior to 2017. So let's really focus on what happened um, from 16-17 onwards. I think if you look at the chart there, you've got the sort of 21-22 and you've got your average tickets there. And uh, it's quite comparable with um, the the nineteen twenty season. So if you think about average attendances um, in terms of before COVID, it isn't a million miles off. We are quite similar. There is a massive drop off there, though, in terms of the, uh, the not massive, but 1890, we got 14 and a half thousand people there. And then you look at 2122, we've got just over 11,000. So we've lost three and a half thousand people on a, on a weekly basis there. And I think for Rovers, that's got to be a big issue in terms of you, you've seen the graph with regards to income. The one we can have a big impact on it is match day and ticket sales. And to me, those numbers kind of say, are we doing enough to get people back at the club? Um, and and that's, you, you kind of go back through time to sort of like, you got the huge years down there. There obviously some big crowds there. You're up in the 20,000s, but once you get down to sort of 10, 11,000, I've, I've always thought kind of this season in particular, if you're buying a season ticket, you're, you're kind of hardcore rovers now. I think in terms of getting people that are going to suddenly start, you know, I'm going to get a season ticket at Rovers. It's difficult to attract new fans to a club that isn't over the last 10 years been very successful. It's kind of, we all joke that it's a bit of a glutton for punishment being a Rovers fan. But if, if I'm a Blackburn lad, I've been brought up Rovers fan. If you were picking a team now, I think there'd be probably something quite sadistic if you weren't from Blackburn and you picked Blackburn. A bit of a glutton for punishment. But that is for me that the problem is that season ticket, not not just season ticket. That that average attendance is, it's what is that a third of the stadium? Is it eleven thousand there or thereabouts? Yeah, it's gonna, you could going to be yeah. about that, isn't it? It's that's that's a worry, and that's like you say, you can see it reduced. And I think COVID does have an impact on that this year. I think we had a, a year and a half of well, I don't do the Rovers on a Saturday. I stay at home and I maybe watch it on iPhone or, and, and, and I'll do all this other stuff. I might be. And I think, I think I say we'll come on to it after in terms of pricing structures, but the club probably didn't do enough to skew people towards the, I can't wait to get back. It's almost that, mm, actually, I, I might maybe rather do something else on a Saturday because I've got used to it with COVID. I, I enjoy not spending the, the 400 quid on a season ticket and the amount on the, the, the beers and the pies and the programmes and things. So, yeah, I think, I think yeah. that's the... That's the the key point that you made there. So COVID has changed the world. It certainly changed people's perceptions about what are safe places to be. Uh, I think football being outdoors is probably safer than, than many. 
the, the pre-match pint in the pub is probably uh, an area of greater, <laughs> greater risk, to be perfect, for many and various reasons. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. A whole season with no fans going through the turnstiles, people form new habits. Um, and football fans are notorious for sort of like being in routines. And as soon as you shatter those routines, it's difficult to get back in. So if I were conducting Steve Waggett's appraisal, I think this is one area that I would really, really focus on and sort of say, can you explain to me, Steve, what the rationale was here? Because we seem to have quite Byzantine pricing structures where we, we have lots of different category games and we seem to have lots of sort of weird and wacky ways, the waggot tax, dare I mention it, mm. uh, to enable us to charge away supporters uh, more for certain games. Um, the proof of the pudding for me was when the prices were reduced for the Sheffield United game mm. and the attendance rose, notwithstanding it came on the hot on the heels of that uh, incredible defeat for them. Yeah. Uh, the, the fans still turned up and the atmosphere in the ground felt different. It did feel the fans were were supportive of the team. They recognised what had happened and that, well, even when we went to goal down virtually straight from the kickoff, the, the, the sheer volume of, of supporters in the ground really seemed to galvanise everybody on the field and off the field. I'm also a massive fan of getting as many people into the ground as you possibly can to get them back into that routine, to get them back into the habit, but also the on-sales. So yeah. if you've got 20,000 fans in the ground, you've got 20,000 people, I was going to say that you could sell a programme to, but you can't <laughs> even do that, can you now? 20, I knew 20, I shouldn't have mentioned programmes. <laughs> no, 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 maybe not. 20,000 people you can sell the monthly Matchday magazine mm. to, and good luck with that, by the way. That's that's, that's a whole other, um, other stream of consciousness. But you've got the pies, the beers, and all the rest of it. Uh, if you've got more people in the ground, I think as a spectacle, uh, it looks better on TV. You're far more likely to get... Um, to get a good atmosphere generated on TV and come back again and all the rest of it. So there are a lot of ancillary sales that come with just getting people through the turnstiles. And that's the bit that I just, I despair sometimes. We're recording this before the Preston North End game, but what an opportunity to capitalise on, on a great recovery after the Fulham mm. defeat. But no, 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 we're, we're charging £30 a ticket and it's quite likely that Preston will not sell anything like the number of tickets that they could have sold. Just imagine a ground you know, with yeah. 27, 28,000 people in, maybe paying 16, 50 or £20. Now, I know yeah. you can't do it every week because that's not fair on season ticket holders, but just try and get some momentum going. I'd, I'd kind of argue that point about the season ticket holders because I've got a season ticket. I've paid full whack for my seat. I would much rather have the ground full, regardless of what I've paid, because it makes my experience better. It makes, like you said, the, the Sheffield United game, the, the atmosphere, the more people there, the encouragement to the team. I, I appreciate what you're saying about if I've paid X amount for my season ticket, and actually if you divide it by the cost of a match day, you're out of pocket. But I don't really care. I'd rather have a ground full, an atmosphere, and people yeah. in there. And I, I think a lot of season ticket holders would be of the same opinion. But yeah, it's not great. But if it pushes us up and helps out in the short term, I'm, yeah. I'm all for it. Well, I think that's very altruistic of you. But I think, you know, to, to, to be fair, the season ticket holders are our bedrock. That's the firm foundation mm. upon which we should be building. So anything that alienates that those folks, yeah. I, think, I think we've got to be really tread really, really carefully. My biggest concern with Waggett is it's almost... It feels like he's he's recognised that the elasticity of demand for that group is is phenomenal, and it's almost that like, way. There there's a certain hardcore of Rover supporters that will go come what may, 
And he's sort yeah. of like, well, if I can upsell them or I can charge them more and I can get more out of that population, that's how I'll get money. Compare and contrast. Uh, and this is one of my favourite uh, chairman is, is Andy Holt at Accrington Stanley, mm. who's on about building something from the bottom up incrementally, year on year, giving shirts out to school yeah. children in Accrington, uh, encouraging them to come to the stadium. And even if he only had 250 supporters a season, he sort of sees it as a 10- or 20-year project. He wants that club to last forever. So you've got to build it up from the roots upwards. Yeah. And the the Rovers, on the other hand, it feels a very transactional relationship. It's almost like we've got a game coming up. What What tactics can I employ to extract as much value from the people coming to that one game? irrespective of the impacts that it will have on their likelihood and their propensity to come to future ones. So if I was doing Stevie's appraisal, um, that's what I'd be, uh, I'd be poking him and saying, can you explain this to me? Because I'm, I'm not convinced. Finally, one other element of Rover's trading operation, which I think is, is subpar, is the, the merchandising. I mean, we've, we've seen a shift from suppliers to Nike to Umbro now to, to Macron over the years. We never seem to have particularly attractive lines in there. We never seem to have enough stock. Uh, we, we never really seem to actively market it. It's almost like we'll get some stuff in, we'll stick it on the shelves, and, and we hope it, we'll hope you'll come in and buy it. I know COVID has disrupted supply chains, and again, I'll call it the entwistle defence. Um, that, that card can be played to explain why it's not quite straightforward. We're seeing supply chains break down all across the economy, so it's not just about football kits coming in from Italy. But I do think that for years, probably since the Kappa days, Rover's merchandising has, has got worse and worse each year, and we don't really capitalise it. We don't have partnerships with suppliers that could provide stuff under licence. We don't seem to do that. We don't really seem to fully exploit the retro market. So we're selling to, to a, a younger population and ignoring, uh, shall we say, a more mature population of my age group, perhaps, who, who'd be willing to spend money if only there was something in the shop that I wanted to buy. So in terms of what Rover's could do better, I think imaginative ticket pricing, uh, more active marketing uh, of tickets, and certainly the commercial side of things, that could be improved quite dramatically. I think on the, the commercial side, in terms of the, the merchandise, I, I don't think we're quite back to the Lonsdale days where it was like a glorified Sports Direct shop. I'm, I'm glad we're well away from that. But on the flip side of that, you did get quite a lot of stuff in there those days because it wasn't just Lonsdale. But I completely agree with your point about the retro stuff. I mean, it's, there's a massive market out there now for kind of the classic football shirts, the um, the, the terrace stuff, the the retro retro classical, I think it's called. The club have it. Do they own the the IP for the shirts, and it, it's their shirt? I don't understand why there isn't a market for them. Well, there is a market. Why we don't satisfy that market and have a, a kind of classics corner? And you've got some of the the great shirts from yesteryear. You got like we we see the title winning shirt. What about like the some of the the real atrocious ones we had like the, the keeper shirt the year after which was like an orangey <laughs> yellow and I had it and I loved it and the more jazzier the better for me but I completely agree with that and I'd just like to kind of touch on that from a, a Ben Brereton point of view and for me that we are I'll probably come back to it later missing a massive opportunity with Brereton there's very little we can do to make money off him in terms of image rights and stuff like that but shirts and merchandise is is kind of the way forward and i, I like the t-shirt that rovers put out with the, the rovers and the chili and stuff on it but it's kind of fruit of the loom stuff if i'm a, a kind of 18 19 20 year old i wish um 
I'm not going to go buy that. I'd, I'd rather go on the internet, find somebody selling a chili shirt and buy that. And it, for me, it would be such a sensible decision for Rovers to say, you know what? Yeah, we've got this deal with Macron. That's who we are now. But let's go speak to Nike and let's say, if we buy this many shirts at this rate and sell them for, let's say, 20% markup, they would sell like hotcakes. I'd, I'd go buy one. I looked at buy one on the internet and kind of, oh, that's what Rovers got going on oh, they've got this little grey number, which is lovely, but it's not for my taste. I want something I can wear that's kind of a bit of a, a poke in the fun at the fact that we've got a lad from Stoke playing for Chile. But at the same time, it gets behind him, he gets money into the club. It's, it's, it's a massive opportunity missed for me, that. And I appreciate there's this kind of licensing and sponsorship and stuff behind that, why they can't do it. But instead of telling us why we can't do it, tell yeah. us what we can do and, and there how are we things get that you that. can do yeah. you're absolutely right so it's not easy it's not straightforward and i know of at least three companies i've spoken or had correspondence with at least three companies who'd be willing, who would have been willing to do licensing deals with rovers but they, they, yeah. they found the door shut so i think it is uh, it is something to look at right um we're talking about income uh and with one of the areas and probably the main area where rovers can raise money although they haven't necessarily been particularly good at it in the last few years, is player trading. So if you look at since we kind of got relegated from the Premier League in 2012, we have only had kind of three years where we've actually made a profit on player sales. And if you think of the players that we've had come and go in that time, we've had sort of your, your Jordan Rhodes, your Rudy Gostedz, your, uh, your Adam Armstrong's not captured in this, but obviously he will be next year. you got your David Reyes, those sort of players. And to have three years of profit and that probably tells you how much we're spending on some of the players we did bring in that perhaps weren't that successful for us with very little sell-on clause. So I'll kind of fast forward a bit from that. So, so we lost kind of net 50 million first season down. That kind of reduced to sort of 4 million in 2013-14. Uh, 2014-15 reduced a bit further. And then in 2015-16, we started making quite a bit of profit on that. So we were up at kind of 17 million, I think it was in 15-16, which was... Gusted, Olsen, Rhodes all leaving. And then 16, 17, we're making kind of around about nine and a half million profit on that. And you're looking at Hanley, Duffy, Marshall, players that are leaving to go to, to Premier League clubs. And then the final year of profit was 2017, 18. And I think that's more a sign of how little we spent than how much we brought in because the, the only notable sale in that year was um, Steel from Ingol. Um, so you, we didn't sell him for a massive amount. We didn't spend a lot of money that year. But, but what is showing kind of on the last kind of 18, 19, 19, 20 is the additions have gone up. So we've had this kind of period of first down in the championship. We've spent the money to go try and get back up with the likes of Rhodes and you've got a lot of losses. We've then kind of gone into the kind of profit stage, which is probably a sign of where we were financially then in terms of your, your transfer bans, how much you, you're kind of losing at that point. And then we're kind of getting back round to that we're spending a bit of money again and we it'll show on a later graph i think how that reflects in terms of wages and wage to turnover we've seen the arrow go down it is starting to go back up again which is again impacted by covid but it is a bit of a worrying trend um what what i will say about the kind of 18 19 and 1920 deals is is we're buying players we're not paying seven million for ben brereton we're playing we're paying two million a year for four years he's not a lump sum signing it's the amount of time it takes to pay that in effect so the length of his contract and the same with sam gallagher um so yeah it's there's a bit of a worrying trend there for me we've kind of hit the sort of 
We've sold all our assets by kind of 16, 17, shall we say. We've gone down to League One and we rebuilt the squad from there. What I would say is that squad that came up, we haven't really made any money on them, despite having some big impact players through your likes of Corey Evans, your, your Charlie Mulgrews, obviously Danny Gray, and we got nothing for we We tend to see, as we are at the minute, players running contracts down and leaving for free rather than selling for a massive profit. And and the kind of the, the kind of outlier for that is obviously Adam Armstrong and, and how much money we got for him this last season, but it'll be in this season's books because it was after the 30th of June, which again, so it won't show in 2021, it'll show in 21-22. Uh, yeah, so it, we, that and that'll lead into things like the, the sale of the, the training ground and things like that to, to bring the money in to try and balance the books, really. So, um, yeah, it's uh, that's that's kind of where we are player trading-wise. Yeah, I think the, the Adam Armstrong sale is the only significant one that we've had uh, in, in the last four years. As you say, we won't see the benefit in next year's account. Obviously, I, well, obviously, the rumours were hot that Bradley Dack would have would have departed these shores uh, for a sizable fee, but but for the uh, the terrible injury that he had, uh, and I think Armstrong came along just in time, really, to to, to help Rovers out of uh, out of FFP. Yeah, we'll get on to FFP in just a second. There is one three-letter acronym that we cannot have a conversation about finance in football without touching on, and that's FFP. Or call it profit and sustainability, whatever you will. But we'll call it FFP, because that seems to be the acknowledged um, shorthand. So we've talked about COVID and the impact that that's had on income, and FFP is predicated on the relativities of your costs to the income that you're generating. So the more income that you generate, the more profit that you make, the more you can spend in the transfer market in its simplest terms. We've already established that Rovers are heavily reliant on gate income. So when you have a year where there are no gates, where in reality the only matchday revenue that Rovers can generate is through sales of iFollow, then that's going to have a massive impact. And I don't think it's any surprise, therefore, that Rovers looked, first of all, to sell the STC for housing developments. Uh, and now, just before the cut-off of the rules changing, uh, Venk has bought the STC through a separate company. Now, the net, the net impact that that has for Rovers, it means that all that money that has been generated from the sale of the STC is considered to be income. So on those graphs that Glenn was talking about earlier, that's income that's allowable for F, FFP. So it reduces some of the pressures. You've almost got to think about the STC as being selling the player. It's brought in a lump sum straight away, which impacts FFP. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that Rovers are sailing pretty close to the wind on FFP. Yeah, I think you can just look at the numbers from the accounts and extrapolate what will happen with no turnover in the 2020-21 season and see that Rovers were, were very, very close to the wind. So having to raise some money, they've sold Armstrong, but of course that was after the year-end cut-off. So they had to do something else, and the sale of the STC is the mechanism that they've chosen. Uh, for me, it's still within the Venkis group. So if you remember at the start of this, we talked about assets being held in the group. Um, it's not been sold to a housing developer. Well, not yet, anyhow. I am I am nervous and I am somewhat sceptical, but at least it's still owned by Venkis. And at least it's only the STC. It's not the sale of the stadium. Mm. So we're not into Sheffield, Wednesday, Derby County territory just yet. But FFP has a massive impact on what Rovers can do. We have wealthy owners, 
but they can't necessarily spend. And who knows, if Newcastle United get relegated, what we might see is the world's wealthiest club not able to spend any of that money next season. So that's something to look forward to. Glenn, any observations on FFP from your perspective? Uh, just to echo what you've said, really, in terms of the selling the training ground is, is the equivalent of selling a player. So you, you've got to kind of fill that hole somewhere. Uh, we, we've said about Armstrong for maybe 21, 22. He'll, he'll plug our gap in that. I think if you look at the data on, on what we have lost over recent years, you kind of 1920, we lost almost 22 million. 1819 was 18.2, uh, 17, 18, 16.8. So since we got kind of relegated to League One and came back up with, with quite hefty losses in the couple of years before that, we were sort of at the one and a half million, 3.8 million. Then it shot up with the League One year, as it will with, with wages and whatnot. And it's kind of stayed up there for a couple of years. The, um, the, the kind of cutoff for FFP is, is up at sort of 30 odd million off the top of my head. I can't remember. 39. Is, but 39. Yes, yeah, so it's three, three years. Three times 13, million. but yeah, we're in it. the four year period because of COVID. Because of COVID, which is interesting because you're, all, you're going to have two years impacted by COVID out of a four year cycle, which I'm not sure how that's going to work and, and what that means to us. Um, what doesn't I will say us. is that <laughs> it definitely doesn't help us. But I think we were sort of at around about 57 million losses. So we're well over that kind of that limit. So we need to do something. So you've got the, the training training centre sale, which I'm, I'm not in favour of selling things because you can only do it once and it should remain with the, the club and the fans. But as a needs must, I'd probably rather them sell the training ground than the stadium. Uh, in terms of um, whether they can build houses on that or not, we went through that whole exercise and debate earlier this year when they looked at the housing development i don't know whether that's linked to the valuation and and kind of that'll be kind of a forever the optimist and say it was a kind of kicking the tires type exercise but um yeah it's we've got to do something with that uh, if the Fenkies ever do decide to sell the club i very much doubt they're going to hold on to the training ground the amount of money they've put in i think they'll want shut up the lot um it, it doesn't really matter if you've got somebody like newcastle like you said who are multi 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 billionaires and they can spend whatever they want you can't actually spend whatever you want in football because of the profit and sustainability rules and the ffp rules so it's how you reduce those losses and and the way we do that is through player sales sales of other assets match day income commercial income it's how do you offset that loss um so yeah i think we touched on bradley dyke before i think had he not got injured he would have been solving the the hole in the finances a couple of years ago which i think we've eventually sold Armstrong maybe like you say a couple of years too late in terms of challenging FFP from that front but um, yeah it, it doesn't make for good reading and well, something worth noting is that with the senior training centre and the academy you do get money off your losses so it doesn't really show on the books specifically what the academy kind of contributes to but you can knock roughly three million off your losses for FFP because it's a non kind of match day playing kind of cost it's it's to do with the, the good of the game the, the development of players so the academy as well as being a fantastic feeder for the first team is actually helping us from a financial point of view not just sale of assets when they when they establish themselves but also just from having the the academy as a category a helps us out Yep, it's an allowable expense, as, they, uh, as the accountants would have it. Right, so let's uh, let's have a look. Let's compare ourselves to a couple of our, well, I'm going to say peer group, but one of them isn't one of our peer group anymore, as, as we'll touch on. But uh, good guy, bad guy, uh, Derby County and Brentford. Regular listeners to the Price of Football podcast wouldn't like us to go through our version of the Price of Football podcast without referencing Derby County, so we're going to do that. So compare and contrast us with those two clubs, would you, Glenn? 
Yeah, so um, <laughs> basically, there's, there's kind of a, an intersecting moment with us and Derby. If I focus on Derby first, so when, when we were first relegated, we were we were, had a lot of income and uh, we, we got that mainly from parachute payments. But uh, in terms of profit and loss, our, our losses were quite quite kind of high back in those days as well. Derbies were quite low. And then what's happened over the last kind of probably three, four years, as our losses have kind of reduced, Derbies have got greater and you can see the position that they're in now in terms of the losses. In, in terms of income, ours is much smaller as well. So we've got kind of 14.9 million, 16, 17, 9 million for the, for the League One season, then back up to 16.7. But Derby's are kind of twice as much as that kind of before COVID, before our relegation. So they've got a lot more money coming in, but they're also spending a lot more. I think they've spent ridiculous money on transfers, on wages. It's... We, we don't want to be like Derby in terms of, as we've sort of, we've got worse, but not as bad as Derby have got worse is probably the best way to put it. Um, and I think the, the other group we've got on there is, is Brentford. So Brentford are a, an interesting club in terms of financial. Um, they obviously be in and around the playoffs. So, so what I've tried to do here is look at two teams that are perennial kind of playoff botherers, shall we say. And, and that's ultimately where we want to get to. So, so how far away are we off them? So Derby from that, the, the graph you've got there in terms of income, we're, we're, we're miles off Derby there. They're, they're kind of outspending us by twice as much, but I would imagine their, their incomes that you see on the graph, that's twice as much as well. So that, that's where that is. Brentford are more comparable to us. So as a club, I think we should be looking at what, what the Brentford do. To, to get to work to get to the Premier League, what what have they done? They've changed moved stadium, which isn't captured in this, but they've been able to spend the money, move stadium, and still be relatively sustainable. It's um, we, we should be focusing on Brentford as a kind of something we want to be like. They, I don't think they've ever had losses of more than kind of fourteen million. So our, our biggest loss back in the day was sort of. 35 and then we're, we're kind of down there now at sort of 20 million so that that's where we want to be we want to be more like Brentford and look at them and I know their the model's different to ours so they don't have an academy they pick up the players that are let go by other clubs they don't have a, a, a kind of they, they have a B team that plays friendlies and that's how they develop their squad it, we, I don't want us to go down that route I, I love the fact we have the academy but in terms of how they get money in how they become more sustainable I think that's what we should be looking at I think they, they announced this week they were not having a new kit next season because it's not fair on the fans to be shelling out twice. And those are the kind of tough conversations. As we, we said earlier, we should do more with the merchandise. But then at the same time, I do kind of remember the years of, well, you only have a new, new kit every two years. And to be charging kind of 50, 60, 70 pounds for a shirt is it's a big expense in the, in the grand scheme of things. So, so just looking at things like that, it, it gets people on board as well. It's that. They're certainly the innovative. Door. There's, there's yeah, no that, about that. that's the word I'm after. Innovative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we will touch on Brentford again before the end of this. But just to wrap up this section, which has been about income. So if you remember right at the beginning, we said we talk about income, we talk about expenditure. You might notice on that graph that there's no white or red blocks. Uh, that's because the accounts weren't available. But you can get the sense from the 2017-18 and perhaps comparing Rovers' income in 16-17. But we will come back to this when we look at the other side. So that's income. What we're going to do now is we're going to look at the other side of the equation, which is expenditure. Rovers costs, what do we spend money on and why? So 
So the graph we've got on screen there is the wages and other costs. Again, back to 2016-17. So you can see the big chunk of our costs are the wages there. So you've got kind of 22 million. So the season we got relegated, we were spending 22 million pound on wages. To put that in context, the season back up, we were on 22.4. And then 1920 before the first COVID season was 25.6. So there's a pretty hefty chunk there, if you remember back to the income slide as well. And the other costs are the other things the club are spending money on. So that's things like maintenance, day-to-day activities, things that aren't captured by a salary in effect. So that's kind of upgrades to stadiums, training centres, all that kind of thing. For me, this is quite an important one, this with the, the, um, the maintenance, just in terms of things like the pitch. So there's a lot of talk last season uh, about the, the quality of the pitch in the second half of the season. And that's not captured in here, obviously, because that's 2021. And there's talk about spending a million pounds on the pitch and whatnot. But... Things like repairing your pitch don't count towards FFP and profit and sustainability. So that again, there's a way to be a bit more kind of creative there. For me, last season, the pitch was a massive part in the way we played. We played keep the football, pass it around. If you've got a pitch that's like playing on the beach somewhere and it's not level, it's going to be difficult to play that style of football. So for the price of a million pounds, I think it was, was it Swansea that completely relayed their pitch halfway through the season? It's a small price to pay if it gets you another three, four, five wins or whatnot, it's as good as another player. I know that's quite subjective in terms of our playing style and whatnot, but just to kind of put it in context, there are costs that that's your wages is the big chunk and then your other costs are kind of maintenance. Yeah, I think what's interesting for me is how the um, the other costs reduced by 20% in, in 2020. And um, many fans may remember we had the accountant's review and goodness knows how much the accountants charge us to do the review, and that was a cost in and of itself, which we probably could have got rid of, because I don't think they came up with anything earth-shattering. But there's lots of anecdotal evidence that we see uh, around the stadium of things not being maintained and maybe not cleaned and painted in quite the way that you'd like to see, and I think that that's where it's manifesting itself. Um, the pitch, of course, as you rightly say. So I think if I've understood FFP right, what you're saying is we should employ loads of academy people who also know how to relay a pitch. So we can just bring all the apprentices on a coach, they dig the pitch up, put a new pitch down for us, and then we can allow that cost against FFP. So I was we'll, thinking we'll I was thinking of being a bit more creative and buying a new pitch. And oh, by the way, he comes with a 30 goal a season striker that you don't have to pay for. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> that would be terrific, wouldn't it? So that's the wages and other costs. Let's drill down now a little bit more into the trend of the Rovers' wage bill. I think it's pretty well established in the football world that there is a close correlation between wages and final league position. Whether that's correlation or causation, then I'll leave to the stats nerds, but there's certainly a correlation. So what's been going on with Rovers' wage bill? So the first graph we've got on there is your average weekly wage. So that is, the, we're actually lucky enough that the accounts have the, the amount spent on wages in there, and then obviously you can divide that by the year and whatnot, uh, and then your percentage income. So, so the, this is the, the most important statistic in the accounts for me, is this wage as a percentage wages of a percentage of income at the minute for 2019-20 we were at 189% so that means for every pound of money rovers make we spend 1 pound 89 on wages that's not sustainable to be sustainable you want to be at worst at 100% but that leaves no room for transfers for error anything like that and 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 that's a concern i think for the the last season so 2021 will be over the twenty, the 200% mark, which is, I think, recently Reading have been in that position 
and look where they are now. They're getting points deductions and whatnot. So, so on that last that graph, we don't want the arrow going up. We want it coming down, and we also want the bars to come down. But then running into the next kind of graph we've got there is the wages is intrinsically linked to the league position. If you look at the wider kind of league, the teams that spend the more money on wages tend to be the teams performing towards the top of the league. There's a lot of clubs have kind of spent money on transfers and wages and have kind of rolled the dice in terms of getting promoted, avoiding the FFP impact. So if you think along the likes of Aston Villa a couple of years ago, even back to Bournemouth, they were spending well in excess of their means, but it was the gamble of, it's worth it if we get promoted because there's the big pot of cash there to kind of reward ourselves with. We, our chance to do that was kind of our first couple of seasons down. We spent the money. We spent it on Jordan, Jordan Rhodes, which was very wise. We also spent it on Dixon Atiru, Danny Murphy, Leon Best, maybe not so wise, and a whole Portuguese contingent. So my, my biggest kind of irk of this period is that was our opportunity. And for me, I, I don't want to bring Steve Keane into this, but changing him at relegation point and getting somebody established in, we wouldn't be where we are now. And we're still paying the price for that in terms of FFP and wages and losses. And it's kind of, you, you see, kind of start tumbling and trying to resurrect that is quite difficult given the, the kind of what we are as a small town team. So uh, I don't know about you, Glenn, but I'm getting a bit dispirited here because it seems unless you spend loads of money, you can't finish high up the league table. I don't suppose by any chance you've got an example of a club that didn't necessarily spend loads of money and finish high in the league table, have you? I've got one, maybe two actually. So the first one that springs to mind, which I'm not going to go into detail on, is Sheffield United. So I've not picked them out because they were kind of a flash in the pan in the championship. They had like two or three seasons and they were straight up and they're now back with us. But the one for me is is kind of Brentford, as we talked about them before. They, they haven't spent a, an extraordinary amount of money or anything, but they've still achieved the goal of getting to the Premier League. And I think that, again, is kind of what we need to be looking at. They've run it in a sustainable way. They've, they've kind of not had the, the sort of losses that other clubs have. They've not spent it on the, on the wages and things like that. They've, they've kind of run it in a sensible way. 2017-18, they were spending kind of £19 million on wages. They finished ninth. That the following year, we spent £15 million on wages. Sorry, yeah, £30 million on wages and finished 15th. We're finishing kind of six places behind them, but, but spending a, a lot more money than them. And then 1920, Brentford finished third. We finished 11th and spent 20-odd million on wages. There is a way to do this. It's just how you kind of, how you do it sensibly. And I think that kind of brings me on to what we've done in the past and maybe how we are changing a little bit. So in the past, we, we, there was a time when we were almost a, a club for hire for loan players, free signings. If there was anybody on a free we'd be interested in them. You kind of look back to some of the players we have playing for you. you got you know, like so Simeon Jackson, Luke Vaughan, the types that I, I don't think any of us would have gone and picked them up and said, oh, that, that's the guy that'll shoot us to the Premier League. But what we've moved towards now is a kind of a more of a, a tight-knit squad, which I think a lot comes from that League One season where you've got players that aren't so much household nail, names, but they have quality. We took a bit of a gamble on Dak and it's paid off. But you've also got the academy players so when the academy players come through at first, they aren't on the big wages. And by big wages at Rovers, you're probably talking 15 grand a week, which is, I'd love 15 grand a week, but in the grand scheme of the championship, that's below average and quite considerably below. You look at the side at the minute and we've got John Buckley, we've got Lewis Travis, we've got Ryan Niambi, we've got Daryl Lenahan. We've had many years of them at a cut price rate, really, that we, we need to take advantage of. And I think that probably comes to a head this season with the contract discussions. And that's potentially why we're in the position we are, that maybe we we can't kind of 
give them the money that they want because it skews the model even more than, than it already is. Yeah, well, well, we'll we'll touch on that shortly. I just want to major on Brentford because for all those people who are sort of saying, well, what can you expect? You can't compete with clubs with parachute payments and all the rest of it. Brentford are the... Um, the trump card that you put down on the table. And I think it's interesting to look at the, what are these, 19, uh, sorry, 19, 2019 and 2020 figures. The key difference between Brentford and Rovers that's enabled them to trade is the profit on player sales. So Brentford brought in £27.2 million of profit in 2019 and then brought in £24.9 million of profit in 2020, and then finished higher on the table in 2021. So that is the model. It is all about extracting value from your players. What Rovers have done, and you've just touched on it, is we found some really, really good players, but we seem to be letting them run the contracts down, and we're not going to get anything like 50-odd million quid from player sales. But Brentford are the role models. This can be done. And look at Brentford's wages to turnover number. 186% compared to Rovers 189%. So they are still sailing very close to the wind in that respect. But they're confident in their ability to bring through players and to extract value and to make the most of it in terms of a league position. And as we all know, they did in 2021. Our business model has to be that, that basically you, you trust your scouts to go out and find you those gems that you're going to find in the lower leagues. You, you like to see your, kind of, your Bradley Dax, your Harry Pickerings, that kind of thing. And, and you supplement that with the academy players. So you, you're getting players that you're not paying a lot of money for, but Rovers can be seen as a club to develop them as maybe as a stepping stone. And there's no shame in being a stepping stone. It means you're going in the right direction. In terms of our long-term goals, you've kind of got to look at it from a view of, yeah, the stars have to align to an extent. But if you can get that right bunch for a year, have a little bit of luck, but actually push it. Maybe I don't want to put a jinx on anything, but have a good run, kind of get in that top six and then maintain it. You, As I say, you're not paying transfer fees and the wages are a little bit lower. And yes, you might have to sell your best asset at the end of the season, like um, Ollie Watkins, which is probably what that big number comes from in the uh, Brentford accounts. That has to be our business model. And yeah, you might have a high wage bill, but once a year you get you sell a player and you offset that with what you're selling the player for. So let's draw some conclusions then, and then we can uh, have a bit of sport by giving Mr. Waggett his, uh, his grade at the end of the year then, shall we? So uh, this section, we're just going to touch on how can Rovers compete? Well, we've already mentioned owners' funding isn't necessarily an option. What the owners can do is they can invest in FFP allowable schemes so they can continue to fund the academy and hope that in the due course that brings through players uh, and income from the sale of those players. You can't just pump money in, though. Newcastle United may well find that out next season, if not this season, even if they stay in the Premier League. Rovers can't borrow. Not from banks. No one lends to football clubs. Nobody. Um, Not without massive amounts of security. Or unless you're in the Premier League and you can um, use the TV contracts as security. Spurs borrowed from the Bank of England during Covid, but they've had to repay that back. Borrowing from banks is not really an option. Rovers, as a football club, borrows from its parent. But, again, FFP comes into play because it's trading that's the key. It's making profit that generates headroom to be able to invest in the squad. 
So what we've got to do is to go back now to our discussion about income growth and cost control and try and make some sense of what Rovers could do. On the income side, ticketing, season tickets, we've touched on, we talked about that. The commercial side, the corporate hospitality side, getting fans, more fans in the ground, spending more money in the ground and enjoying it, that's got to be the way forward. And at the moment, I don't think Mr W has done a particularly good job on those ticketing schemes and certainly not on the commercial side of things and merchandise. So I think there's some there's some headroom there that Rovers could exploit. On the cost side of things, I think it's pretty obvious to see what they have been doing and that's been brought into sharp focus by COVID. They've had to rein costs in. They've had to get the high wage earners off the bill to give us the chance to, to keep some of the youngsters together. The bit where Rovers' interpretation, shall we say, of the Brentford model has fallen down is where we haven't secured a lot of our players on long-term contracts. So we are in danger of a, of a whole raft of players leaving without us generating the sorts of sums that we've seen that, that Brentford have generated. One of the key ratios that accountants will talk about is the jewels ratio. So if you imagine income and expenditure, you want your income to be growing faster than your expenditure and the jewels getting wider and wider. That's the challenge for Rovers. That's what they've got to do. They've got to continue to take every opportunity to grow the income side of things, but not having expenditure rising. It's a real conundrum. It's not straightforward by any stretch of the imagination. Can anybody do it? Well, we've seen in the Championship that Brentford are role models. We saw Sheffield United go from the third tier through to the Premier League. Granted, they've dropped back down, but they did actually do that. I'm a big advocate, as I've said earlier on this uh, on this broadcast of Accrington Stanley and their model. Andy Holt will invest in anything if it generates income. Mm -hmm. So if it's building a stand that he can then sell tickets for at a premium cost, if it's building a bar that generates income, he will invest that money in it. And he's not averse to spending money on a pitch either to improve the pitch. So that's interesting. There is another club dear to our hearts just down the M65 that's shown us what can be done and it'd be interesting to see how their new owners fare and that is of course Burnley so they managed to get promotion they get managed to get promotion and drawing coil once as well so it just does show that all things are indeed possible I think we can take lessons from each of those clubs I think there's there's elements of, of the way that they operate that gives us uh, scope so I, I have a grade in mind if we're doing sort of like um, A, B, C, D, E. I have a grade in mind for Mr. Waggett. But Glenn, do you want to wrap up and uh, share your grade and then I'll, I'll nail my course yeah. to mass? I think we, we kind of talked about it earlier before we came, came live. And just kind of the more you look at the numbers, it, it is kind of a depressing read. And you kind of see it, it's, it's, it doesn't give you sort of, doesn't make you feel excited about anything. Not that numbers do for a lot of people, but it's, he is kind of working with his hands tied. There is only so much he can do. Whether he could do that better, I think, is the question. I think in terms of you look at the losses of kind of like the, the 20 odd million we talked about, it's very difficult to, to offset that loss. I think I did some rough back of a fag packet maths and we'd have to have an 80,000 seat stadium and sell every season ticket to, to cover that loss. So that's kind of where we are. And there is the expectation of the fans as well. So you can't just kind of turn the tap off and you know what, we're not spending any money anymore because we can't. All of a sudden that's a double negative because people aren't going to turn up every week. And then your, your income goes down, you, your costs are probably still going to be at the same level and you, you're compounding the situation. So I do have a little bit of sympathy for him to an extent because he, there is very little he can do. We're, we are a small town team. So there is a, 
a limited, relatively captive audience as well. And I think I almost said it that it's about getting as much money out of those as possible, which is kind of what he's, he's doing, just probably going about it the wrong way. For me, it, we need to do more to get the next generation of fans in, to get those people in once and back the next week, things like that. A lot of that is affected by what's on the pitch. And for me, there's no better time to start watching Rovers with the passion and commitment that those players are showing and pr- probably far out achieving wh- where we should be, really. Um, and we do need to kind of get on the back of that and push it and kind of get the marketing campaigns going. The social media, without meaning to sound like um, the, the Super League kind of prospectors, kids do like those 30-second clips of stuff. I, I love the Rover Store videos with Bradley Dack and uh, Ben Brereton just taking the mick out of each other. But you click on that and it's, well, actually, I will have a look in the club shop and I will see what there is. That's a nice training top. There's not enough of it. There's, there's just kind of since I think it was it Ryan that used to do the social media and he went on to bigger and better things. I think there was a bit of a kind of a lull after that. And that we were riding a wave then of the League One promotion. I think we really suffered from that, from just that content of getting people involved. And I, I, it's it's not linked to financial directly, but I don't very often go on the Rovers website because there's nothing on there for me to go on for. And similar with the the kind of I, I envy whoever gets the job of the social media person, because the minute you post something, it's all negative, negative, negative. What you need to do is give something for people to say, actually, this is really good. This is a good thing. Let's get people in. So my grade, probably being a bit generous, I'll give him a C, kind of a C. Could do better, but could probably do a lot worse as well. Yeah, uh, well, I think I think we've we've summed it up. I won't go over the ground again. I think there are there are opportunities to exploit income to a much greater extent that we don't take. I think we make it very confusing and very difficult for our fans to spend money, and that that is unforgivable in the current climate. We should make it a lot a lot easier. Uh, I don't think it's an easy job. I, I know I can I can appreciate the constraints, but I just don't think we've covered ourselves in glory. If I'm being uber generous, I'd say C minus. But in my heart of hearts, I think it's a D. I think it's a, I think it's a failure. Go and revise. Come back and sit the exam again because I don't think uh, we can afford to to carry on in this vein. Glenn, it's been terrific talking to you. Thanks for for doing the prep on the on the graphs. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe when the next year's accounts are publish we can do the same sort of thing again and see where we've got to and maybe who knows we might even be in the playoffs by the time the next accounts are, uh, are published so fingers crossed for that thanks very much my friend i do appreciate it thank you very much cheers Ian. thanks for having me on enjoyed it thank you perfect gift for a football fan aren't you in that case you need to go to the terrorstore.com and search through the marvelous range of rovers products you'll see mugs prints bags and much much more all in the colors of your favorite team blackburn rovers and as you are a loyal listener to the brfcs podcast enter brfcs at the checkout to secure a 10 percent discount the terrorist store not just for christmas <laughs>